Today's reading is from verses in 2 Samuel 24, 10 through 25. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, There shall come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from, the mor- from that morning until the end of the time, de- the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong, but these are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it here. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built the altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Um, Thank you that you are here. God, we pray that your word would fall on good soil. God, that you would transform us, fill us with your spirit. God, we pray that your kingdom would come in this place as it is in heaven, Lord. So with that, we give you thanks. We give you praise with expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And you may be seated. How are we doing this morning? 
Good, 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 good. So good to see you. So good to be here and to preach God's word this morning on this beautiful fall-like day. It is September 1st. It's fall time, so get your fall clothing out. And it's the first of the month, so wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. All right, some of y'all know. <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Anyways. Um, so like, like, um, like Al said, we've been in a series um, called Shadows of the King, and then we've been looking at the life of David. And we, and we see a story of a young shepherd boy who becomes king, who ex- as we look through his life, we see he's experienced a whole lot of highs and a whole lot of lows. Last week was Bathsheba, and, if you, and there's chapters about his kids going rogue and taking over his kingdom and places where David cuts corners and he may even kill men and just he's a lot of turmoil and things that happened in his great king's life, and, and arguably, he's still the greatest king ever of the people of God. And so here in, in 1 Samuel 24, um, this chapter is kind of an appendage because it's not necessarily chronolo- chronological, because it's like the last chapter of Samuel, and this event actually happened at a different time, so it should be placed differently, but the, the author finds it fitting to add this book and um, this chapter and, and as I read it and prepared it, I, I really believe that God has something to say to us through this story. Amen? Amen. All right. So this whole chapter um, exists and can be summed up because of one line. And I'm going to call this the, the Britney Spears line, like the oops, I did it again line. <laughs> and it's, um, it's verse 10. And David, David says to the Lord in verse 10, I have done a very foolish thing. I've done a very foolish thing. Have you, have you ever in your life made that statement? And if not, I do not believe you. <laughs> I, do, I just don't. I mean, you might. some of you come in here, and, you know, including myself, we act all holy like we never had a pre-Jesus life, you know. Like we never had a oops, I've done it again moment in our lives. And maybe even in our Jesus walk with life, we've been like, oops, I've done it again. Um, I've done a very foolish thing. And so I'm just going to say at this point forward, like let's just keep it really, really honest. Um, because if, we, if, if I'm honest, I've had moments, nights, days, weeks, and, and years of my life where I've done very foolish things. Where I've, had very, where I've had epiphany of moments where I'm like, man, that was a foolish part of my life. That was a foolish error in my life. And have you ever been on the other side of, the, of that statement? Have you ever been on the other side, maybe as a parent or a spouse or a boss or a roommate? Or, you know, you don't want to hear that as a roommate. You're like, man, you don't have rent because it's the first, right? Um, you don't want to be on the other side of, oops, I've done a very foolish thing. And the interesting thing is when, I, when you read, like, the plain reading of this, of this chapter, it's really hard to see, like, what was so foolish? Like, what happened? Why is God so furious? Especially if you've been tracking through the life of David, you might read the story and go, what's the, what's the big deal? What's the big deal here? Like, what happened? Um, so as, as, as a dad and as like a pastor for a really long time, oftentimes people come and say they need to talk to me. And when they say they need to talk to me, usually like, man, they got something big to say. And so I always think about 
if I went up to someone that was in leadership and I told them I needed to talk to them, like what kind of thing would happen to warrant me to ask that question? So I'm like, man, it'd be something really, really big that would make me say, man, I need to go talk to you in your office. And so, um, <laughs> and so a lot of times people will come and they'll talk to me and, they'll, and I'm expecting something horrific. And they, they tell me something, I'm like, is that it? That's it? That's all you want to talk about? You didn't like the way the, way the lighting was at church Sunday? And this is not against you, Liam. You know, like, <laughs> I just thought of the first thing I saw. Like, um, and I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. And so um, this is not the case. This story is not the case. And a matter of fact, the foolish thing is way bigger than it appears. Verse, verse 2 of chapter 24 it says this. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, men so that I may know how many there are. This is, this is the foolish thing that David does. David decides to take a census. I think we have one coming up. It happens every 10 years, I believe, right? Um, and the difference about this census that David is taking, um, this is a military census. And this census that David is instructing Joab to go conduct, um, if, 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 I'm not going to read on the screen, but in verse 8 it says that it took nearly 10 months to complete this census. And they're going all across the region, going in every town and counting every single person that's available to fight. And so it says when they were done um, with this process that Joab comes back and reports to David how many able people there are. And he says, there are eight, you have, he says, David, you have 800,000 fighting men in Israel. He says, and you have another 500,000 fighting men in Judah. And he, he describes them as those who can handle the sword. I love that. That sounds pretty dope. Um, those who can handle the sword. And he goes, you have nearly 1.5 million people that can handle the sword. Doesn't that feel awesome? So you might be thinking, what's the big deal? That does sound pretty awesome. That what the people of God have at their disposal. And I just... We're going to basically talk about why this was a problem. Why this was a problem. The first point of why this was a problem, and it will be very simple, it says, this did not come at the command of God. This was a problem because this was not a command from God. And, and, you, might, and you might be thinking, as I have been thinking, is wait, doesn't God normally conduct, conduct censuses in Israel's history? Like, I can look back and find where there's, there's, there's precedence for a census. And he even had Moses, when they first came out of Egypt, um, conduct a census of all the fighting bodies. Um, there's a book called Numbers. <laughs> right? It's like, God, you seem to be one who's into counting things. You have a whole book named after it. Why are you getting on me for counting people? And, and if you're an accountant in this room, there's no shade coming at you today. Um, um, and the thing about census is that if you look throughout Scripture, there's always been something that's been ordered by the Lord. 
And every time it's been ordered by the Lord, um, we won't go through, but Exodus says that each person who's numbered should also give an offering for themselves. So there's a, even in the process of a sense of atonement is required. And so this, um, this census is, was not a direct command from God. Um, usually when God is into numbers, usually when God brings up numbers, it's only to highlight his greatness. It's to highlight his greatness to provoke dependence and wake up our worship. Anybody with me? 2 Samuel 24.1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So you read this line, you go, This might seem like a contradiction. Wait. God, did you make David take the census? If you read that, you will go, man, God, it seems like you're behind the census right here. If I read this verse accurately and see what happens is there's some, some tricky language here. Um, God did not want a census. David did. So God in his anger allowed David to do what was already in his heart, even though it was misaligned with God's intentions. One commentator says really, really well about this passage. Sometimes humans have a desire to do something which Satan leads them to do, and God allows them to do what they want to in order to reveal to them that they are wrong. The best interpretation here seems to be that the census was wrong. David's desire was so strong, God told him to go ahead. There's a, a parallel account of this story in the book of First Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. And it's the, that incited is the, is the same word that God, the interaction with Satan and Job, when God allowed Satan to go after Job and his family, it's the same word that when Satan went after Saul and oppressed him. So there's this precedent of this word. And so here we understand that it wasn't God who is provoking David, but he's allowing the enemy to play on Dave, what David already wants. You guys with me? Okay. All right. So God allowed the adversary. We won't I mean, you say, we'll say the adversary because I know some of you are just thinking pitchforks right now. So the adversary, God allowed the adversary to tempt David. And that tempt means to seduce, to move to persuade, to stir up, and what's to stir up what's already percolating in David's heart. The ad, and here's the adversary's motivation here, is to get the people of God, especially David, to think that they're pretty awesome. To think, we got this. We got 1.5 million swinging swords. We're pretty strong. We're wicked smart. That was good, right? Um, <laughs> only been here a month. I got it down. All right. <laughs> we might even think we're unstoppable. We, we got this. We got a large army. We have 1.5 million people ready to go. And, and, I, and I believe this, that many of us probably have a, have a number in our head or some type of metric that we believe will keep us comfortable, safe, and confident. 
Why? As human beings, we long for security. We long for security. We need to place our need for security in something. Come on, Enneagram Sixes. We need to play. <laughs> We need to place our need for security in something, whether that's an alarm, a safe, a safe neighborhood, finances, weapons, guarantees at our job, guarantees with our spouses, guarantees with dating prospects. And whatever the threat is to our well-being, our security needs to match or exceed so we do not have to worry. Come on, somebody. I'm trying to preach this thing today. Just fine. Um, and the subtle danger of having a large military is, is to shift our trust for deliverance in our military over our trust and deliverance by God. See, the problem, I love the word, the problem isn't just having a large military, it's being obsessed with it. I remember when I was young, uh, I would do some. I would do work for my grandfather and make, you know, make fifteen, twenty dollars, and I would go to the bank and ask for ones, <laughs> right? And I'd have ones, and I would just like obsess over them, and count them, one, two, one, two. <laughs> Had a money clip, anyways. <laughs> See, it wasn't, see the, the problem is, is obsessing over what you have and it ends up subtly shifting your dependence and what it should be to, what's, to what you have and that's the problem. And I wonder for us if God is just a backup plan. I wonder for us if God is a real distant, way, way backup plan that we hope we never have to really get to. That we have lines and lines of defenses before we ever really need God. And the temptation of the king or insert leadership position is to compare yourself to others. We see God's plan all along was that he would be king over the people, but the people said, we want to be like other nations, please give us a king. And when you want to be like other nations, you compare yourselves to them. And, the and other nations their security and their boasting comes by the vast amount of horses and they lead with coercion and they trust in their strength and they flex it. Read Psalm 20, verse 7 with me. And, I, and all of these, I put a, a reminder, a Psalm of David. Just to let you know that David wrote this. He says in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I want you to hear it in the New Living. He says, some nations boast in their chariots and horses, but we, the people of God, we boast in the name of the Lord our God. See, Israel was supposed to be a different kingdom that reflected different values with wholehearted trust in the Lord. And I want you to remember that this David who took the census, this census is the same David who said in 1 Samuel 17 with his confrontation with Goliath, he says, verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And he says in verse 45, David saw, said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. 
David, who had nothing but stones and a slingshot, said, I trust in the sovereignty and the strength of the mighty hand of God in this situation than anything else. And now we have a David who's saying, I got to count how many warriors I have. Contrast shepherd boy David and now king of Judah David. Not just counting his army, but counting on his army. Either he has forgotten or he's lost the trust that he had as a young man. And there's something about success. There's something especially about early success that causes us to believe that we did it. And that it's up to us to keep it. Here's another danger about success. It can cause us to act presumptuously. This is the second thing that David did wrong. David acted presumptuously. He says in Psalm 19, a psalm of David, I'm going to read from the ESV. He says, keep, your serv- keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of a great transgression. Presumptuous means that you're brazen, you're overconfident, you're audacious, bold, familiar, forward, free, overfamiliar, presuming. And David is saying, keep me from being overconfident, brazen, audacious, forward, free, overfamiliar, presuming on the things of God. You've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. This is what presumptuous sins do. David's prayer is, not, is that he doesn't get so comfortable with God that he can't tell the difference between his desires and what God wants. One author says this. He says, more, more generally, it appears that presumptuous sins arise from carelessness with God and his word, and carelessness with the needs of others. We can also be lured into these sins by the willful disobedience of others. Whatever the origin, over time, our carelessness, our carelessness leads to callousness, and callous hearts lead to arrogance or insolence towards God and others. When we get in the place where we think that we know God's will and we can just go ahead of God and do things. That is a dangerous place to be, even for things that seem to be good. The principle that runs throughout God and the people of God is that power and victory come from God, not from numbers. I love the story in Judges with the story of Gideon, and Gideon is, is being raised up to be a leader and, and lead the, the people of God against their oppressors. And it says in, in Judges 7-2, it says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And, I, and, this, and this is kind of challenging, right? Because you're just like, God, why can't you do it with a lot of people? <laughs> I would feel way, way better, way, way more better if I'm walking into battle and I know I got a lot of people with me, right? <laughs> and God is saying, no, no, no. Because if you win, you're going to think that you did it. 
And I want to send you out there with complete dependence on I do not have enough to do this. I think the word for us today is to watch out for misguided trust. Watch out for misguided confidence. See, we, we live in a world that celebrates success, especially in the pastor world. How big is your congregation? Like, how, how much do you have? What do you have? And we often trust in what we have and equate that to greatness instead of trusting in the greatness of God. And God is saying, don't trust in the greatness and the vast number of your army. That's fleeting. Trust in the greatness of who I am. See, David was taking stock of how big his kingdom had become. See, that's, that's the place of pride, and that's David's greatest sin. Remember David said in verse 10, he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. See, remember the census isn't sin. David taking this census, there was a sin part inside of him. And so success is often the breeding ground for pride. And pride is often the catalyst for foolishness. David said in verse 10, I've done a very foolish thing. And I, I love the, the King James. This is David's heart smote him. That he was so acutely aware of how wrong and messed up his motivations are that when he got the epiphany of it, that his heart was crushed. And he said, I've, I've sinned and I've done a very foolish thing. One definition of, of, a, of a foolish person is someone who in his pride is wise in his own eyes but acts contrary to the will of God and thus does intentionally or not what is evil. His foolishness culminates in a denial of the existence of God. Counting people isn't inherently sinful, but David counting the people was. And see, often when we talk about sin, we ask, and I ask the question of where is the line? Where, where, where is the line? And that's often the wrong question. And the question for us today is, are my motives in line with what God wants? Look at verse 3. Joab replied to the king. This is right after David makes the request. May the Lord our God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Even Joab, who isn't a spiritual leader by any stretch of the imagination, asks, David, king, my Lord, why do you want to do such a thing? What's your motivation? And the third question we ask is, what's the motive? Jesus as he was turning the kingdom principles on their head, he says, it's about the inside of the cup. Because they would often say, Lord, at, at what point is, has, has, has one sinned? And he would go, well, what's in your heart? Have you done it already in your heart? Well, it's a done thing. And that would shock people. And David right now, we're looking at the heart of his motives, and they're saying, what inside of you wants to do this and Why? 
Psalm 139, a Psalm of David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. What's inside the cup? And if we look inside the cup, we see this thing called ego or pride, which is often the driver of our motives. Um, Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche? Nietzsche says this. <laughs> Whenever I climb, I'm followed by a dog called ego. With unchecked ego, we will do foolish things thinking that they are part of God's leading. And in our failures, we will misappropriate the true culprit of our failures. Parker Palmer says this, if we do not understand that the enemy is within, we will find a thousand ways of making someone out there into the enemy, becoming leaders who oppress rather than liberate others. I know this is not a feel-good message. <laughs> the good news is coming. The ego, the pride is the ultimate self-sabotager. And it's a subtle thing that moves into our leadership and into our lives, and all of a sudden we think that we can move ahead of God and make decisions and end up walking in presumption, and then God has to arrest our souls. Our actions are costly. What we do, the things that are birthed in our hearts, what we do with them actually cost us something, and they cost people around us. God asked David which punishment he wanted. He tells Gad, go and tell David, verse 12, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. I, and this is, this is silly. This is one of my favorite parts of this whole thing because it reminds me of when my allergies say, you're in trouble, Rashad. Why don't you, I'm going to do this for you. Why don't you go outside and pick which switch you want me to spank you with? <laughs> that was before it was wrong to do that. <laughs> In case some of you are thinking to call Child Protective Services on my nana. <laughs> Even God, in, in his furiosity, has a little humor and a little bit of, and a whole lot of grace. David, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you some options here. <laughs> You're in trouble, but I'm going to give you some good options here. Um, verse 15, and David, David, he picks one. And so the Lord sent a plague, verse 15, on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And so there is a cost, not just to us, but for those around us, those under us and the decisions that we make and how we live and how our hearts are responding or moving ahead of God. And verse 17, it says, and when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And I, and I know when we read and I read or others read judgment passages, that it seems unfair that God would judge a whole nation on the acts of one person. 
And I, and I just want to say that same unfairness works to our advantage when, the, when there's a righteous one and God decides to bless a whole people because of a righteous one. Eugene Peterson says this, judgment is not the last word. It is never the last word. Judgment is necessary because of centuries of hard-heartedness. Its proper work is to open our hearts to the reality beyond ourselves, to crack the carapace of self-sufficiency so that we can experience the inrushing grace of the healing, merciful, forgiving God. Whew. Good news, God loves mercy. God loves mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Even in the midst of our most foolish act that God sends his mercy and makes atonement for all our foolishness in life. And though David is often in his shadow, in the story, he gets a glimpse of the life that God offers. He gets a glimpse of a true David who's coming to sit on his throne so that the people of God may experience the love and the closeness of God. And by the end of this story, we find a David who's trading him his obsession of counting military might, vainglory, self-confidence, distrust to God, to being obsessed with worship. Last passage, last scripture says, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And there's a shift in David's heart where he moves from trusting in what he has to trusting what he has. From obsessing over what's going to make him great to obsessing over the greatness of God. And he buys a plot of land where the future temples are built, and he puts down sacrifice in you and you alone. Some trust in chariots and horses, but our trust comes from the Lord God, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And I, my appeal to us today is for us to put all our trust in the resources of who God is. That he is good and loving and that he has concern over you. He knows you. He knows all that you need. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you that.